0: Good morning. I'll try not to sniff and cough into the microphone. My name's Shane. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of preaching God's word from First Peter chapter four, verse seven through eleven. You have a Bible. Go ahead and open up there. We're doing the odd step this morning of jumping back into a series that's already been finished, and that's because in early November, when I was supposed to preach this text, this sermon, uh, I had the stomach bug. Be grateful I didn't show up that Sunday. You're welcome. So, what I'm doing this morning and I ask you to do with me is to believe with me that this was God's purpose and plan, that we this morning on the precipice of a new year, us who are gathered here, anyone who is listening online, that we would be in this chapter, these verses, and hear what God has for us this morning. This morning, we look at 1 Peter 4 7 through 11. And and I know it's been a while since we've been in this series, so I just want to remind us for Peter, who who spoke these words, and, and it seems like a scribe wrote them down, and this is Peter's words for the church. For Peter, these words were not void of emotion. See, when Peter longed to see the Lord's face, when we as a church, as Christians, say we long for our Lord to return, We we together are thinking, I hope God comes back. I want to see God. I want to see His face. But for Peter, he had a physical face in mind because he walked with Jesus. He longed for his friend. He missed Jesus. So this morning, let's not read the Word of God clinically. Before we dive in these five verses, I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine with me it's 20 minutes from now. 20 minutes into the sermon, and I am preaching, and you are on the edge of your seat. You're hanging on every word. You're writing notes. All right, maybe that's too much to imagine for us. Maybe, maybe it's 20 minutes from now, and you remember, oh, I have not changed my fantasy football lineup, and you slyly pull out your phone. Whether you're listening and paying attention or whether you are distracted, in 20 minutes I want us to imagine that we are gathered together and we hear a loud trumpet sound. Loud and piercing, crisp and clear is the note through the room. One of those sounds that just vibrates in your chest like you're at a rock concert. You can feel it, and you wonder where your heart is beating or where the music is. You, you, you are trembling with the noise. And then you realize in that moment that it's not just the sound, but the earth itself is beginning to tremble. You hear a scream. You churn, you and you look, and there are people here who are terrified, and they are screaming. There are others who are bewildered and confused, and there are even some who look strangely excited. We run out of these doors. We rush past. Some politely, others of you are pushing. We get into the lobby and and you see some go to the left to the truth quest to get their children and others are running out the front door. You go out the front door and you notice it immediately. The ground is radiating. It is bright. It is as if a giant magnifying glass is right over our heads, focusing all the power of the sun on where we stand. And yet you feel no heat And you run. You run to the soccer field. It seems like it's the place to be. People are gathering down there. You see cars pulling off on the side of the road and people getting out of their cars and coming over to the soccer field. And everyone collectively has just had this sense, we should not look up. But finally, you feel brave enough to look. And you lift your gaze up and you fully expect it to hurt your eyes to look up, but it doesn't. And you can see clearly And you see it, there are thousands upon thousands of beings in the sky. Myriad of beings up there, and then you see them gathered around as if they're witnessing something, and you see Him. One descending down where all the radiating glory seems to be coming. You look to your left, and you see people down on their knees with fear. They are trembling with their hands lifted high as if to block it away. And you look to your right and you see others who are gathered with their hands lifted high, their face lifted up, a smile and tears going down their cheeks. And in that moment, 20 minutes from now, you drop down to your knees. You are on your knees. And I want to ask you, my friend. Do you know what person you will be on that day, at that moment? Will you be one who is terrified of a judge who has come or one who is raising their hands in praise because their Savior has returned? Do you know who you will be? You might wonder, why would I start a sermon with a picture like that? We're not in Revelation, Shane you're right. I start here this morning because the very first words in the passage we're going to read are this, the end of all things is at hand, meaning that we're to have this event before our eyes. Now, I fear that all of us have become too comfortable thinking that those words are just filler because they were penned thousands of years ago the end of all things is at hand, thousands of years. And we can read those words and we can rush past them, but Peter himself, the one who authored these words, he also says in Second Peter, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter's telling us that even though it feels like it's been long for us to always live in the reality of this, the end of the time is near. And the assumption that Peter has in this passage this morning is that we would all long for the return of Jesus. See, Peter's writing to the churches. So, his expectation as he longs to see His Savior, His friend, Jesus, again, His expectation is that all those who believe would also long to see His face. He's expecting that there are people who believe that this present age is not their home. All the good blessings that we have, the wonderful gifts. I mean, just coming out of Christmas, I got some cool gifts. All of these wonderful things with all of the horrible things in this world, the suffering and the sin and disease and death, all of it, that we would know this isn't really our home. We're meant to be with Him. Now, if this morning you're still deciding whether you want to be a Christian, I encourage you, do not shrug off the weight of this decision. Allow it to weigh on you. Consider this morning what would it be like to know for sure that you would have joy when the Lord returns. Let me read our passage this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all keep loving one another earnestly to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The, all, the end of all things is at hand. It's not far off. Growing up, my dad loved Christmas morning. Now, I assume he still does, but, but growing up, this is what would happen in our home. My brothers and later in life, my younger sister, we were required to stay in our bedroom on Christmas morning. I mean, it was just the worst. I don't know if you're allowed to just leave your room as a kid and go look at your stocking or open up a present or see all the presents. We weren't allowed to do that. My dad had to come to the door, open it, and let us come out when he was ready. Very unreasonable. We were up at five in the morning, a reasonable time, and my dad would sleep in to seven. And we would hear him in the hall. He'd remind us, don't come out till I tell you, you can. And and then we'd have the excruciating experience of hearing the coffee percolate really slowly in the kitchen. You could smell it. Then, then my dad would go and put on this old Frank Sinatra Christmas hit uh, record. We'd hear him crooning from the den, the farthest room from our bedroom. Then we'd hear conversation between my mom and my dad. Sometimes it would come close, and then sometimes it would go back away. But then there was that final moment where we knew we could hear His voice coming down the hall. He's talking to my mother. It's getting closer and closer and closer. We're all gathered there. We're looking at the door and there's a beautiful moment where the doorknob begins to churn. And we knew my dad's hand was on the other side of that door. In any second now, it was about to open and we would be able to enter into joy that is the moment of history that Peter says we are in today. God's hand is on the door. The end of all things is at hand. He is right there. Now, the Bible consistently uses the word soon when describing Jesus' return, and it's frustrating. It says soon, soon, and we're waiting which means that this is an important tension for Christians to have. We must live with this tension that we are waiting, and yet it could happen any moment now, soon. Now, some in Thessalonica, in the church there, they interpreted soon to be any moment now. So, some of them stopped working like retiring with no savings, kind of no working. And Paul had to write to the Thessalonian church in one of uh, his epistles. He had to write to them and remind them and tell them, you need to work, all right? Don't just assume other people are going to feed you. You should work until he comes back, but hold the tension. He's coming soon. Peter wants to speak to the church on how we are to live between the time of the Lord's hand at the door and the moment the door swings open. That is what he is writing to right here. He says, the end of all things is at hand. And our passage today is for people who are eager to see the face of Jesus. So, Peter is telling us how to live as we wait. How are we to be a waiting church? And this is what he starts with. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. How are we to live by the Lord's hands on the doorknob? We are to be a praying people. Easier said than done, right? Peter doesn't say it's going to be easy. Instead, he commands that we're self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Now, self-controlled… is, is easier for us to interpret. Discipline, temperate. This one we can quickly understand. Prayer doesn't just happen, does it? We don't, I don't know about you, we don't usually drift towards holiness. We have to be intentional. So he's telling us to be intentional. I remember a time of my life where I. Uh, took this to heart. And, and I, I have my own practices now. I, I have an app where I pray in the morning and, and I try to pray in the evening at set times where I set aside as long as I pray throughout the day. But, but there was a time where I remember a friend telling me about his relationship with the Lord. And, and he said, you know, I, I try to consider that if I told my friend I was going to be at this place at this time, that I would show up there. I wouldn't just ghost them. I wouldn't just not show up. I would, I would, I mean, things happen, but I would make that appointment because I want to be with my friend. And so, for a time of my life, I set this appointment after my job in my early 20s at 5 p.m. I would go in my room, I would get down on my knees in front of a little table in my Bible, and I would pray. And it, is a, it was a sweet time of my life. It was, it was the discipline, the practice of being self-controlled and setting a time, an appointment. I'm going to go draw near to the Lord in prayer. Sober-minded is a word that is used for abstaining from intoxication. Don't be drunk. And it certainly means from alcohol, but it doesn't just mean that. Intoxication is like a hazy blanket folding over our minds we become duller, distracted, unfocused, or forgetful. We stop sensing the nearness of the Lord, and instead we sink into a deeper and deeper stupor. Friends, there's a way to be uh, in a spiritual stupor your entire life without ever picking up a bottle. The cares of this world, the promises of money, the concerns of our health, the little pleasures of entertainment, they can drag us into a useless place. And then we come to and realize it's been weeks, months, or even years, and we are so numb to the Lord. Wake up. Another way these words are translated is to be alert or watchful. Wake up. Remember I said that for Peter these words were personal? On the night Jesus was betrayed, He was in the garden waiting. He took three of His closest friends, James, John, and Peter, and He brought them aside. And He said to them, He said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, "'My Father,' this is Jesus, "'if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will.' And he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, "'So could you not watch with me one hour?' Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. No, Peter isn't saying it's easy. He would remember how he had failed before. Brothers and sisters, Peter was roused from sleep to see the sorrowful face of Jesus waking him up. And he's telling us this morning, church, he's at the door. Do not be asleep. Wake up. See, the church, a waiting people, are to be a praying people. When Jesus turns, will he find a people asleep? Will he find us in a stupor? Will he find us distracted? Or will he find us praying and living for his glory alone? And Peter, in these verses to a church, wherever it is in history, is trying to reach out and grab hold of our shoulders and shake us a little bit and say, Are you falling asleep? Wake up. You'd rather see my face than the face of Jesus waking you up. Wake up. So, church, let's wake up this morning. I don't know how long. You've been asleep. Maybe you're in just a vibrant season of just your relationship with the Lord. You are awake. You are alert. You are praying. Or maybe, maybe you sense just this dullness of heart. Maybe you've never even considered the Lord. Please, this morning, wake up. How are you to live when the end of all things is near? how can I sum up end-of-time ethics? I can use two words, one-anothering. I don't even know if anothering is a word, but I'm using it. One-anothering. Three times in our five verses, Peter uses the phrase one-another. And here in verse 8, we find our first one-another statement. The first is the primary one, and it should be the constant banner over our community. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Consider this morning. End-time ethics in this passage is not about how to build a big program as a church. That wasn't Peter's concern. It's not about starting a new movement in our generation. It's not even about how to save the lost. Peter speaking to the scattered churches and to us today is saying that in light of the nearness of the end, since his hands on that door, since that door could open at any moment, church, love one another earnestly. Above all, everything else, over everything, the primary command. Now, you maybe are rolling your internal eyes right now. I've heard this before, Shane. It's one of the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love one another as yourselves. I got it. I'm hoping for something a little bit more actionable this morning, Shane, not so vague. I get it. You know, there's a story in church history about the Apostle John. He was the only apostle not to be martyred. Can you just imagine that for a second? he walked with Jesus, he walked with his closest friends, and then Jesus died, rose from the grave, met with them, and then ascended into heaven. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the church spread out, and one by one, his closest friends who all loved Jesus together began to be murdered for their faith until he was the last one And he was just waiting to be with Jesus and his friends again. For his faith, he was exiled on the island of Patmos, and that's where he received the vision and revelation that we have in our Bibles. But after that, he was allowed to return to the church in Ephesus, and in his old age, He was unable to walk, so they would carry him into assembly. And as church tradition goes, second and third generation Christians would travel to Ephesus to hear the great teaching and preaching of the Apostle John. They would go hoping that that John would give them just this rousing and powerful sermon, or, or maybe he'd have a new antidote about the life of Jesus that no one had ever heard before, or maybe even he would get a new revelation and say something new. And They would bring him into the middle of the assembly and lay him on the ground there. And everyone would gather around and they'd be leaning in to listen. And he would lift up his eyes and look everyone in the face. And he would open his mouth and he would say, little children, love one another. And then he closed his Bible and that was his sermon. That was it. Those five words. See, when the Apostle John was seeing the end of his life come near, he knew he would soon be with his Savior again. What message did he want the church to remember? What did he want Christians to remember? What did he want us to remember? Love one another. Let's not pass over those words because they're familiar. The Apostle John, knowing this, he he wanted to impress upon us how important this command was. It describes and summarizes our entire horizontal relationships. We are to love others, and we are to love them earnestly. That is with a sincere and intense conviction. Sometimes we can fall into the belief that love is kind of like a disposition towards others. Like the Wi-Fi setting on our phone, we just click it and leave it on. Christian love is not passive, though not something that just happens. Christian love is action. It's active. We're to love earnestly, intentionally. Now, I'm going to avoid giving specifics because if I say love is this, then we can just check it off. But love one another as you would want to be loved to bring Christ's love to others. I wonder what would happen to the relationships in this room if we looked around and we committed, we began, and I know this happens already, but but for all of us, if we were to love each other earnestly, intentionally, what relationships would be improved in this room? Who would you go spend time with that you never spend time with now? Peter tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, there are two important things to say about this. First, when we love others, we do not erase their sin, but we can overlook their sin, meaning that we can forgive one another. See, we can overlook slights. We can bear with one another. Uh, Matt Frank right here is my best friend. He has been for years. It's funny because he's sitting right behind my wife, who's also my best friend. I'm not going to explain it. It's just true. I have sinned against Matt in our friendship. I've been proud in front of him. I have prioritized myself over him at times. I've been selfish and greedy and mean. At times, I have hurt Matt. And yet, I know that if you were to talk to Matt at any time and ask him about our friendship, he would tell you how great of a friend I am to him no doubt in my mind. How can both be true? Because Matt and I love one another. Our love for one another can cover sins and slights and failures. It just weighs more. Now, it doesn't deal with the sin, right? It it brings and heals our relationship and reconciles us. But the second important thing is our love for one another. It cannot atone for sin. Jesus' love is the only love that can do that. See, Jesus' love, it deals with our sin. See, I, I say this because every time we sin against one another, even Christian towards Christian, there are consequences for our sins. That's part of our belief in the gospel, Right? There, there is a consequence for every time we sin in life. And most of our relational sins, when we commit them against each other in the church, we can allow those consequences to be dealt solely on the cross of Christ. This is love covering a multitude of sins. But, but there are sins that have consequences for our life now. Infidelity can lead to divorce. That is a consequence of sin. Sin that breaks the laws of our land lead to legal consequences. One example of relational consequences, I think, is found in Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas are about to go on their second missionary journey. And they say, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work, meaning that he was with them, but at some point on their first journey, he left them. And we don't get the reason why, but he left. And there rose between Barnabas and Paul a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed away to Cyprus." Now, we don't know that conversation, we don't know what broke the trust, but we know that Paul had broken trust with Mark. And I don't know what this sharp disagreement looked like or whether it was sinful or not, but their solution to their disagreement wasn't to force all three men to go on a journey together. It wasn't, Paul, just get over yourself. The gospel, love covers of sins. You go with them anyways. No, they, they eventually left on two different trips and they separated for a time. But later, near the end of his life, in his final letter, 2 Timothy, Paul asks for Mark by name. And he asks them, he comes and visit him because he says that he is helpful for him in ministry. So, for a time, they were separated, even over years, but it seems like trust has been rebuilt. Why do I bring this up? Because Christian love in the church covers a multitude of sins, but not all sins are covered in that, that, that we can just move forward without consequences. So, let's not weaponize these verses to tell people that they need to just swallow it and just walk with someone, even if, like, they've sinned against them, not even repentant, or even if they are repentant, that, as if there's no consequences. We can't do that. And yet, for some of us, we lean so much in that direction, we never want to reconcile with anybody. And so there's something here for both of us. We are commanded in Scripture to forgive one another. We are to fight for reconciliation. We are to live peaceably as long as we are able. Those are hard commands that we must obey. Let's not add to Scripture and command that there are no consequences to sin. See, our faith has always required consequences for sin because Christ had to die on a cross for our sins. He has taken the greatest consequence and paid for it. And that is the real hope for the person who's been wronged and the real hope for the person who's done the wrongdoing. See, in our culture today, it does not have grace for people. The the, the concept of reconciliation, restoration, redemption, that doesn't exist in this way. Instead, it's burned the person to the ground. So, for someone who has hearing these words and they look at it and say the culture's too harsh on people, you might say, Well, yes, but the church is different and we need to seek reconciliation. Amen. And maybe you're on the other side and saying, I'm tired of seeing people sin and then pretend it didn't happen and it come up again later again. Amen. If you've been wronged, And you have not seen justice or consequences for the wrong that has been done to you. I want you to hear clearly from the Lord, He is just. God says, Do not seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And know this the sin against you will either be paid in eternal separation from God in hell, or it will be paid on the cross by Christ. And for the wrongdoer, one who is seeking. Reconciliation and repentance, one who, who feels the weight of their sin is now trying to turn away from it, find hope in this, that Jesus can bear the consequences for your sins. So, for the wrong, throw your trust in the justice of God. For the offender, repent and take comfort that God is merciful. You might still feel consequences in this life, but the greatest consequence can be paid by Christ. We are to love one another earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. Let the church be different than the world. Now, Peter gives some specific ways for us to love one another while we wait for the door of Jesus' uh, return. Peter gives us two one another commands. First, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is a practical expression of love. The word of hospitality in Scripture means to love strangers, and this command is towards believers. So, Christians, love other Christians even when they are strangers to you. Christians, love non-Christians as they are strangers to you. In Peter's day, this would have meant to take them into your home when they were traveling from out of town, to feed them and shelter them. Now, our houses have only gotten bigger, haven't they? Our pantries are larger than they were in that day. Our luxuries, oh, air conditioning, have only gotten nicer. But somehow this command has never gotten easier, has it? Has the rapid enlargement of our comforts led to a wrapping, shrinking of our hearts towards others? What does loving one another look like? Sacrifice. Sacrifice prioritizing others, taking risks, giving our best to others, and to do so without grumbling about it. See, to store bitterness in our hearts towards others while taking them in is not obedience. You know what I'm talking about. It's the, the, oh my gosh, it's been such a burden having them with us, but we're glad to do it. That's not obedience. Do we love strangers? Do we open our doors? Do we bring them to our dinner table? Maybe you don't even have a house. Can you still practice hospitality? Yes, love strangers. Do you go to them? Talk to them? Learn their name? Walk with them? Now, trust me, if God wanted to, He has plenty of material to grumble about us over, right? He invites us into His family, His home. Are we good dinner guests? No! No! I know my heart. I'm not the best person to have for a long stay. And yet Jesus loves me. His love doesn't look like grumbling. It's the kind of love that endures long-suffering, rejoices. For every single one of this morning, we were once strangers to God, and He loved us anyways. He invited us into His life. He gave us His life. And now together, we long and wait for him to return to make his home with us forever. As the Lord is at the door, Peter commands this last one another statement. As each received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We all have gifts from God. If you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then he gives us and you his Holy Spirit. And it says in Scripture that every single one of us have a spiritual gift, meaning you. Now, what is that gift for? Is it for me to to build myself up, to be cool, to get a following, or to do anything like that with that serves me? No. Our gifts are meant to serve others. That's what they're there for. And it says that we're stewards of His very grace, meaning you have a part of God's grace, a way to love others in the church that I don't have. And we're to steward gifts together and to love one another. And the community, the church, is not meant to look like a bunch of people of the same gift, loving in the same way. It's to be all of us using our gifts to build one another up, meaning I need you You need me, and we need each other. We need all the gifts in the church working together to build one another up, to give glory to God. Now, we're to use those gifts. For those who speak, whether it's preaching, prophecy, encouragement, teaching, or any other speaking gift, we're to speak as if they're the oracles of God. Now, what does that mean? Are we saying that we're speaking on behalf of God like the prophets of the Old Testament? No, I don't see that here. Look at the next verse. To those who serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I believe the point right here is that our gifts are not just from God, but the power, the glory, and the credit for when they're used properly goes to Him. See, in Romans 3 and Acts 7, oracles, the word that's used here, we're always referencing the promises given in the Old Testament. So, I I think the picture here is that we are to use our gifts knowing who is giving the gifts, who gets the glory for the gifts, and the power for them to work in people's lives. Always. And the moments that our selfish hearts try to curl in on themselves and take credit for them, we are disobeying this. And I remember a while back, a brother in the church came and encouraged me. He used his gift of encouragement to speak life into me. And I remember it wasn't, it wasn't vain things. It wasn't just kind things. He wasn't talking about how great my hair was. It's funny because I don't have hair. No, he was, he was speaking truth into my life. He was noticing ways where I look like Jesus that I didn't used to look like Jesus and he was encouraging me, and, and I was deeply encouraged, which encouraged him. Why? Because he was like, oh man, I'm so awesome in encouragement. No, because he knew he wasn't. He knew that it didn't come from him. He wasn't that good, and he could trace it back to God, and so what ended up happening was not only was I encouraged, then he was encouraged, but then we both look at God, and we were both worshiping God because he's so good to us, church, you have gifts. And while the end of all things is at hand, the door has not yet swung open. So, while we are here, we are to use the varied measures of God's grace, the varied gifts He's given us, church to serve one another to His name. So, what does this all look like together? What, What does it look like to live with the end of all things coming soon? What is awaiting people Awaiting people are a praying people who love one another earnestly, who love the strangers around them, and serve one another with the gifts God has given us. And why do we do this? All of this is done as we see in verse 11 that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We are together through our love for one another glorifying God through Jesus What a wonderful task for the church to have as we wait to see Him face to face. If you ever stop and just feel purposelessness, you ever feel this measure of where's my life going? What am I doing? What am I supposed to be doing? Let me tell you, you can live in a way that gives glory to God through Jesus, and what a glorious purpose for your life. And if we all have that same purpose together, church, we look beautiful. See, I wonder what will it look like? What will it look like when the door opens up? What will it be like that moment when when Jesus opens the door of history and time to return? Will he find us sleeping? Will He find us at each other's throats? Will He find us using our gifts to build ourselves up? Will He find us taking all the good gifts He's given us and using them for our own selves, our own families, our own glory? Will He find us divided in separate corners of the room in camps? Will He find His people waiting together praying and loving one another, inviting in the lost and strangers, gathering them all together, waiting together at the door, looking at it together so that when it opens up, we are ready to praise the name of Jesus together. The King of Kings has finally returned, our long-awaited Savior. Will he find a people spilling over with joy as we cry out and rejoice with one another? Will we be the kind of people who fall down to our knees, not in fear, but in worship? Will we be a waiting people, church, for our King Jesus? Soon. Soon. Don't let that word just roll over you. Don't be numb to that word. This is the word, attention, that our Lord wants us to carry every day of our lives. I don't know who the old pastor was. I could have Googled it, but I didn't. But I remember it once being said, I want to endeavor to live in a way as if Jesus was, died and was buried yesterday, as if... He rose from the grave and ascended into heaven today. And as if I knew, He was coming back tomorrow. Church, let us be these kind of people. Now, if you're still considering becoming a Christian, if you don't have faith in Jesus in this moment, the opening illustration still weighs heavy on my mind. Will you have terror in your face or will it be joy? And I want you to know right now, the free gift of Christ is extended to you right now. You can know for certain that you will have joy when you see His face. If you want to know how you can have confidence that you will have joy when you see God talk to whoever brought you today. Talk to the Christian you know in your life, or, or if you don't know anyone here this morning, but, but you're starting to realize, I, I want to know for certain who I will be on that day. Come talk to me. I would love to talk to you this morning to assure you and tell you how God has made a way so you can have confidence not based on your performance, not based on whether you came to church today, meaning you at home online. It doesn't matter. It's not about our works. You can have confidence today that you have joy when you see Jesus. As we go back into singing songs of praise to God, as we reflect on this next song and and we sing it together, For the unbeliever, for the one who's considering, there's an invitation that you can come to Jesus right now. But for my brothers and sisters in Christ, those of us who have been following Jesus for years even, maybe longer than I've been alive, if you have fallen into a stupor, if you feel numbness over your soul, don't just think that this invitation from Jesus is just to others. There is a call right now that we can wake up together and that we can see the beauty of Jesus and rejoice in His coming. You know the final words of Jesus in the Bible? They're found in the second to last verse of the book. The second to last verse in Revelation. This is what Jesus says to His church. He who testifies to these things says, this is Jesus, surely I am coming soon. And how does the church respond? Would it be the way we respond this morning? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Church, let's worship our Lord.